Welcome. You're listening to Sanseet, where you'll find everything to do with spirituality, life lessons, holistic living, and medicine to become your true self. We all have stories, journeys, experiences, and love. Here's your host, Erin O'Dowd. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Sanseet. My name is Aaron O'Dowd. On today's show, we have PMH Athwater. She is an author of 11 books. In 1977, she had three near-death experiences, back-to-back, in which she documents in her books explaining what happens to people who have near-death experiences. And her website is pmhatwater.com. Com. Hello and welcome to the show, PMH Athwater. How are you doing today? Well, I'm doing very fine. Excellent. Um, can you give us a small picture before you had a near-death experience? Uh, you mean what I was like before I died? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was newly divorced. I had three children. I was working for Idaho First National Bank in Boise, Idaho. I was an analyst. I was on the track to become a bank manager. I was taking classes for the American Banking Institute. I had just had my very first experience in college. I was in the mathematics department and I was taking illustrated geometry. And I was absolutely in heaven. I loved it. You know, when I was a kid, I didn't do well in geometry in school. I couldn't understand it. But when I took illustrated geometry on a drafting board, I mean, actually drawing things out, then it made perfect sense to me and I liked it. (laughs) So that's what I was doing before I died. And did you believe in God before you had a near-death experience? Oh, yes. Yes. I was one of these kids that was just sort of born knowing that there's a God and um, having relationships with nature spirits and being able to see otherworldly beings. That was very normal for me. I I had a strange childhood, Erin. I had five fathers and two mothers, which means my life was a little different. (laughs) (laughs) I was raised by a Norwegian couple. I was born and raised in the reclaimed deserts of Southern Idaho. This is farming country, spuds, you know, potatoes and this kind of thing. Kind of thing the Irish are famous for, so are people from Idaho. You know, the the wonderful potato. Of course, in our part of the country, that wonderful flavor and firmness that you get from our potatoes comes from volcanic ash. Because the reclaimed deserts of southern Idaho are almost all extinct volcanoes. And so you've got a lot of that volcanic ash in the soil. So when people say they love Idaho potatoes, what they're saying is they love Idaho volcanoes, <laughs> which is kind of a fun thing. And, and so I was raised by these people until about the first grade. So I had no uh, requirements that I had to be any such thing. So therefore, they were an older couple and they just allowed me to be whoever I was whatever I did was fine with them. So I didn't have restrictions until the age of seven when my biological mother claimed me and I went to live with her and then her various husbands and her various lovers all had many requirements of how I had to act and how I had to be. That began a lot of nightmares for me nightmares in the way of living and figuring out who I was and where I was in the world. The first grade was an incredible, terrible nightmare because I was born with dyslexia. I was also born with stenesthesia, which is conjoined senses. And in those days, nobody ever heard of either one. And there was no such thing as gifted classes for children. 
So uh, my first grade was like this. I had to sit on a tall stool in front of the class, halfway between the teacher's desk and the door to go in and out of the room. And sometimes I'd have to wear a tall cap with the letters dunce on it as an example of the bad child who told lies. So my experience of, of the earth world, that is to say the rest of the world, outside of the songs uh, environment, and that's S-O-G-N, they're from, from the Song of Fjord. My experiences of the world outside of their care was every time I told the truth, I was punished. Every time I told a lie, I was praised. It turned my world upside down. And this was also the time of Pearl Harbor. And I remember clearly Pearl Harbor, death all over everywhere, neighbors dying, Hitler, the SS troops, you know, all kinds of air raid drills and rationing and victory gardens. And in the United States, if anyone died during the war effort, they were given a very large gold star decal, which they would put on their living room window as a statement that someone in their family had died in the war effort. I lived then in Twin Falls, Idaho, and I had to walk to school from the Song's house. And much of that walk, there were gold stars in people's windows. For me, it was a walk of death. I had to walk the walk of death every morning to get school and this one morning, there were six new gold stars overnight in this one person's window. And I just stood there and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. You know, kids know what's going on. And I do not remember one single morning in all of my first grade when I didn't have to stop my sobs and sort of gather my energy just to walk in the door of my first grade classroom. So when I say that the first grade was a nightmare for me, I mean that, and I mean that on many levels. And so um, that just sort of screwed up my life. <laughs> and it took a long time, you know, to make peace with that. Do you know I couldn't touch gold and feel good about gold until the age of 50? And I couldn't wear gold until I was 60. Because for me, gold meant death. And I could never understand why teachers would give you gold stars, you know, if you did wonderful on, on your classes and you got everything right. To me, that was a horror. That was a terrible thing. And I didn't want I didn't want a gold star. You know, I did everything to avoid getting them. So it, it just took a long time for me to work that out and all these issues out. So what was my life before? Well, it was a time of adventure. It was a time of learning. It was a time of a crash course in life, uh, in, in just figuring out who I who I was. And what stage of life did you enter your first near-death experience? I had three in three months. So I, I <laughs> Aaron, I look back at it and I call it the heavenly sledgehammer effect. You know, <laughs> boom, boom, one right after that, crash, crash. Uh, my first one was January two. 1977. That was a miscarriage followed by extreme hemorrhaging. Two days later, January 4, 1977. Oh dear, I, I had uh, a major thrombosis in the right thigh vein which dislodged, followed by the worst case of phlebitis the specialist had ever heard of, let alone seen. That caused the second death. The third one was March 29. Uh, a few months later, a couple of months later. Still to this day, they don't know what caused it. They think maybe it was a heart attack, but they don't know for sure. So I'm speaking here of October, September and October. I had three major relapses, one of which was total adrenal failure. I was working at the bank with a blood pressure reading of 60 over 60, which means I wasn't doing well and uh, wasn't working at the bank for very long. <laughs> you know, when we talk about near-death experiences, when most people talk about near-death experiences, 
they don't seem to realize that most of these cases come from violence or trauma. So you've got a body to rebuild afterward. So you're dealing with whatever occurred plus the body issues. And for me, that was a big deal. I had to relearn how to uh, crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to run, how to climb stairs, how to tell the difference between left and right, how to see properly, hear properly, and rebuild all my belief systems. Daily exercises were constant. Classes were constant. I was determined to be a healthy human being again <laughs> and to figure out who I was. You know, it's like the second time in my life. I, as a child, I had to figure out who I was. Now, once again, I had to figure out who I was. That took a lot of doing. That was complicated for me by my third near-death experience. You know, a lot of, of near-death experiencers return with this knowing that they have a job to do, they have a mission to perform, they have to come back to do that. And I was one of those who had a specific mission that was given to me. In my third near-death experience, I truly, fully believe I was at that point of creation itself and I was able to witness creation as it occurred. And by the way, it's ongoing. And I was able to witness that process and, and, and the process of consciousness as it emerges from the act of creation. And I wrote about that a lot in my book, Future Memory. While I was there, I heard a voice speak. Aaron, this wasn't an angel. <laughs> This isn't an angel voice or a guide or a guardian or any of these kind of special spiritual voices people hear. I mean, <laughs> we don't have words for that kind of voice. It's like it was so big, so huge, so immense, bigger than big. It's like the universe itself was speaking to me. I called it the voice like none other. And that voice said to me, quote, test revelation. You are to do the research, one book for each death. It did not name book one. It did name book two and three. Book two, by the way, is future memory. Book three is a special manual I am now working on. It showed me what was to be in each book, but not how to do the work or how long it would take me. When I was conscious again and revived, that then became like a haunting voice sort of beating across my mind. After I was reasonably human again, which took about a year, then I fell back on what I knew how to do. I'm a cop's kid. I was raised in a, in a police station. I knew and understood police investigative techniques. So I used that as my protocol. It was Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, whom, whom I met by accident in O'Hare Airport in Chicago, Illinois. I saw her there and I'd seen pictures of her, so I knew who she was. And I walked up to her and introduced myself and told her what had happened to me. So her plane to Europe was late, so we sat on a, on a bench, just the two of us, you know, like a couple of schoolgirls, and, and visited for, for about an hour. And she was the one who validated my experience. She said I was a near-death survivor. She did not use the word experiencer. She told me about the phenomenon. That's the first I'd ever heard of it. Never heard of Raymond Moody. Never heard of his book. It was Elizabeth that, that validated me. But her validation, for me, caused more questions than it gave answers. And that was the beginning of my work after I left Chicago and after I had met Elizabeth. And how did that feel, meeting Elizabeth and getting the recognition of what you experienced, like kind of like a roadmap on the way, saying, I'm on the right way? How did it feel at that moment? Well, I tell you, when I first saw her, you know, I had to swallow twice to get up enough courage to walk up to her and introduce myself, but I did. And after I introduced myself and said that I had a story to tell her, and then we sat on a, a little bench, just the two of us. 
it was as if I'd known her forever. Really, it was as if I'd, there, there was no, you know, I wasn't in awe of her. It's like her fame completely evaporated. And all it was is the two of us talking as long lost friends. And it was deep, it was profound, and it was wonderful. And I, I met her many times since then, was with her many times since then. And for me, it was always that same feeling, like I had known her forever, like we were long lost friends. And whenever we were around each other, our conversation was always very deep. I see. And where did you go after that? Did you continue on your search to bring the books to publish and to the world, or where did it go? <laughs> oh, oh, dear, Aaron. I I started talking about my experience in Boise, Idaho, and most of my audiences did not believe me. So I read against that hard wall of uh, disbelief. And uh, I went to one professor, he wanted me to come and talk to him at Boise State University. So I did. And he grilled me, I mean, grilled me as if, as if I was some kind of criminal for over an hour. Just asked me every question imaginable, just grilled me, grilled me, grilled me. And, uh, and I faced him, I answered every question, I was just there, I was real. And at the end of one hour, he said to me, okay, you're ready now to do your work. <laughs> and I looked at him kind of funny, I said, what? He said, this whole thing was a test to find out if you're ready now to do your research. And I tell you, you're ready. And, <laughs> you know, that was kind of a strange but wonderful moment. So I decided to, um, go ahead and start my research. It began in a, in a very unusual way because I, I had then my very first episode of Future Memory where you're living the future before it occurs and in detail. And I was at um, my office in the bank. It was Monday morning, uh, about nine o'clock in the morning. And I was sitting at my desk with a room full of other analysts and I was flipping through the pages of an analytical report and I was holding a pencil with my left hand. I was just flipping through the pages and all of a sudden I was living the future one year in advance. All the places I would go, all the people I would see, what we would talk about, all of it. And I was living it physically. It was visceral. I mean, it was absolutely real. And then the episode vanished and I was back at my desk. And I remember asking the other analysts in the room, did you see anything? Did you hear anything? You know, because I was so shook up and none of them had seen or heard a thing. There were two points in that future memory episode that I could check that moment. And one of them was, that I was attending Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's death and dying seminar in Shanti Nalaya in Southern California, outside of Escondido, California. Well, I, I mean, I had tried before to get into that before I met her and there's like a six month waiting list. So I just gave up. I didn't try anymore. I did not leave Elizabeth with my name, address, phone number, nothing. So there was no way she could have interfered. Um, I, I, had, I had just received that phone number the night before from friends of mine who found it out from another person. So I had the phone number of Shanti Nalaya. I called it and I'll never forget <laughs> the woman who answered. Her name was Boots Martinson. And you know, I was just stuttering. I just might sell my house and I just might quit my job and if I do I just might be able to you know be an Escondido and Boots was laughing and she interrupted my little speech and she said just get here you're already registered 
And there's no way I could be registered, but I was already registered. When I actually got there, first thing I did was look up Boots Martinson and I said, show me your registration list. So, so she did, she, she showed it to me. My name and address were typed on that page. Aaron, I had just bought that home a few months before. Hardly anybody knew that address. That new address was what was typed in that ledger. And I asked Boots about that and she said, well, you know, that was just one of these strange things. She said, one morning I wasn't on the ledger and by that evening I was. And she didn't know how I got on there on the page either. And the other one was this, uh, 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 cousins of mine. I knew the, the man, but I didn't know his wife. And they were living in Reston, Virginia. And I just knew that I had to move to Washington, D.C., that I wanted to stay in their home for a while. And when I was in Chicago, my uncle gave me their phone number. So I had a phone number, called him on the phone. His wife answered. I mean, I didn't know her, Aaron. And her first words were, it's providence, it's providence. You're going to come and live with us. It's providence. God wants you here. I didn't say anything except my name. So that did it. Uh, I had an appointment that morning or right after lunch, somewhere in there, to go to my boss, Karen Woods, to discuss a major promotion in the bank. I was going to get a bank title. And I walked in the door and I said to Karen, I'm going to quit. I'm going to chase rainbows for a while. And she said, shut up and sit down. Her face got really white. And she said, I want you to know I never have vision. I don't do this psychic stuff. But that morning at four in the morning, she woke up her husband so she'd have a witness. She saw me coming to her and saying, I'm going to quit. I have to chase rainbows. And I was so shocked uh, that all I could do is pound the table <laughs> and say, that's not fair. You knew about it before I did. I didn't know about it till nine in the morning. You knew about it at four in the morning. <laughs> so that's what started me. That's how I wound up on the East Coast. And that's where I began my research. How did your family adapt to your, your experiences and your death experiences? Were they open to it or skeptic? I, I didn't have a husband at the time, of course, because I was already divorced. I had a son and two daughters. My son was kind of puzzled by the, the whole thing and, and my differences, but he didn't, he didn't make any kind of big deal about it. He was just, okay, that's the way you are. Uh, my youngest daughter was very, very puzzled. She didn't know quite how to handle it at all, had many problems with her. And she finally went, chose to go and live with her father, who was in the state of Washington. So she left. My oldest daughter, who was college age, she didn't like it at all at first. You, you'll probably get a kick out of this. You know, we're Westerners, we come from Idaho. Southern Idaho, and, and, and Idahoans are very blunt, they're very, it's right in the face, they don't beat around the bush, they don't pretend, the cards are always on the table, <laughs> you know, good cowboy talk, cards are always on the table, and that's true. And so Natalie came to me one day, when I was still at home, and she put her hands on her hips, and she walked up to me and she pointed her finger in front of my face, and she said, well... You're friendlier now than you used to be. I like talking to you, but you're not mom, and I want mom back. Well, <laughs> we, we spent years hunting for that woman, never did find her. I don't know what happened to her. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I don't know, about 7, 10, 12 years later, I invited both of the kids to write me a letter and tell me um, their experiences of me and how I changed. And my son wrote back this glowing letter that I had become this incredibly wonderful person. My youngest daughter decided that I was okay and she was very proud of me. My oldest daughter, as you might think, wrote 
two pages of complaints. <laughs> I mean, complain, complain, complain about the new me. She didn't like the new me at all. And then the very last paragraph of this two-page letter, she said, and I quote, You've done a lot of changing, Mom. Now it's my turn. So that tells me that deep in her heart of hearts, um, she still did love me and she did respect me and that good would come of this. But, you know, I can put an addendum on all of this because decades later, so I'm speaking maybe about five years ago, I heard from all three kids and, of course, now grown men and women, families of their own, children of their own, they all look back at their childhood after I died and they all regretted a lot of it. They regretted the fact that I left Idaho. They regretted the fact that I took on my mission and went about fulfilling my mission. They regretted the part that their mom was now belonged to the world instead of them. And they all had problems with that. And it took sessions with each one, talking it out to figure out, okay, where is their objections coming from? Where's their pain coming from and why? And it took about a year and a half, but um, we were able to work it out with all three of them and they've all decided I'm okay. <laughs> and they all said they love me very much, that I may be different and weird, but that's okay. <laughs> grandchildren that you know they've grown up with the new me so they don't know any different <laughs> and they all think I'm okay <laughs> there's a price to pay Aaron there's a price to pay I don't care how loving the individual comes back I don't care how psychic I don't care how creative I don't care how innovative I don't care how knowing I don't care any of that there's a price to pay. And that price is with your friends, your family, and even with yourself. And that price includes or arranges itself around this issue of who are you really? And why are you here? And what are you going to do about your life? And what has happened to you? How do you fit into society? or how you do not fit into society and what you're going to do about that. And I tell everyone, the near-death experience is not magic. Certainly, the majority of people become a better person afterward, have a better life afterward, but there's still that price to pay because the loved ones, the friends, go through uh, changes also. There's just a whole lot of changes that have to be faced. And did you have to pay that price as well? Oh, sure. All three kids turned against me after a number of decades. And we had to, you know, talk that out. Also, a price I paid, me specifically, was with jobs. How do you support yourself if you're a different person? I'm sorry, but there's no sheepskin. There's no degree that comes with having had a near-death experience. You, you can't go up to an employer and say... This is my new job specs. <laughs> this is the new me. You know, I mean, you can't do that. The, the employer has a, a certain expectation of you and how you will perform. Well, if you're a new person, <laughs> you're obviously not going to perform the same way you did before. And the average near-death experiencer will leave their former employment and find something different or new or create something new for themselves. So there are vast differences in uh, lifestyle, employment, how they handle money, this kind of thing. One of the things I ran into, I, I found a job right away, two different jobs in fact, right away, when I moved east, when I was in Washington, D.C., and when I moved south to Roanoke, Virginia. I found good jobs in both places, but there came a time when the one in Roanoke, Virginia, then we moved to Harrisonburg, Virginia, I had no specific job, 
So what I had always done back in Idaho is I'd go to what we call a temp agency. We'd call it like manpower, where, where they just employ you uh, for limited periods of time, you know, like to fill in on somebody's vacation or little jobs that that pop up with employers and they want someone for maybe two months or something like that. So I went to this temp agency, which I had always done back in Idaho. And this is now in Virginia. And I just walked in the door and I said, put me to work. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what the job is. Just put me to work. I've got some extra time. And they said, well, no, no, we don't do that anymore. Now you have to take a test. So I, I, it's a typing test, shorthand test, transcription test, speed test on typing, and a psychological test. Well, I passed all of the other tests, just wonderful typing 80 words a minute, you know, I was doing okay. But the psychological test, they assured me there's no way you can flunk the psychological test, so don't worry about it. All the other tests were timed. The psychological test was not timed. And so I just breezed through all of it and uh, got my final score. And uh, I flunked it. <laughs> I flunked on the basis of the psychological test. I flunked the psychological test. That is to say, it showed that I was in constant need of help, that I needed to have a supervisor over my shoulder showing me what to do at every moment, that I could not be trusted to do any job all by myself according to my own reasoning ability. And I looked at this woman and I said, now look. <laughs> My biography is in seven to ten different who's who's books. I've done all these jobs. I've worked with people by the thousands. What do you mean? <laughs> I, can't, I can't be trusted to do my own work because you can't trust my own reasoning ability. I think this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard of. And she said, well, we've had one other person like you flunk the psychological test. And she said, the key is stress and 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 that test is so written that they can measure your stress levels from the test she said if you don't store stress in your body you cannot be tested you'll blow the test and one other woman blew the test like i had and she taught stress management at a college and she was a meditator I was a meditator and I didn't have problems with stress after my near-death experiences. So the two of us blew the test. So I warn everybody out in your never, never land, you know, if you're taking these psychological tests for employers, they are so worded that they are then able to measure the amount of stress you store in your body. So that's what those tests are all about. They're not psychological tests. Their tests about stress. I mean, that was a big thing for me, and I was only able to find part-time jobs after that, after I, you know, whenever I could. And life became a very different way of living for me because suddenly I knew all kinds of things, but I didn't have the college degree to prove that I knew what I knew. And, and that was a real challenge. And when did you start researching near-death experiences? Right after I moved to Washington, D.C., which was 1978. Just a year later, after my experiences and after meeting Elizabeth, I started my research about just a few months after meeting Elizabeth. Because I met Elizabeth in 1978, the year after my experiences. And I decided to chase rainbows that I was to begin my work in the East, specifically Virginia and the Washington, D.C. area. So I did that. I sold my home, packed up everything I owned or sold it or gave it away and trekked across the United States all by myself <laughs> and wound up in Washington, D.C. and found a job there. Then I had another future memory episode where I was living another year in advance and I wound up in Roanoke, Virginia and there... I met and married my right and perfect partner. 
and his name is Terry Atwater. You know, Aaron, that was that was 35 years ago. <laughs> and I can honestly say the marriage gets better every year. It just gets better and better and better. The first three years were really difficult because we're very different uh, and we didn't know each other. We met at a Zen meditation meeting, Zen meditation. That's what brought us together. And, and my, <laughs> my husband likes to laugh and he says, and we've been living in Zen ever since. <laughs> Which is just a real hoot. <laughs> and what was your findings from doing all this research? Oh, my dear friend, I filled 11 books with that. Okay. I discovered all kinds of things. Among the things I discovered is the classical model of the near-death experience is not classical. It doesn't hold up in broad-based research. For instance, the tunnel. This idea of the tunnel, most people, children and adults, do not experience a tunnel at all. And in fact, in some countries, with some cultures, they don't know what you're talking about when you're talking about a tunnel. That the tunnel is really a media myth. Yes, some people have it. Yes, some people experience it, children and adults, but the majority do not. The tunnel became associated as much as it is today with near-death experiences because the media chose to take that and use it to sensationalize Raymond Moody's first book, Life After Life. You hardly ever heard about the tunnel before the media did that. And then afterward, you started to hear more and more people talking about tunnels, still not that many, but more. And no, I don't think they were lying. Rather, what I found was that these kind of experiences and the things that happen in them are so above and beyond language. You don't have words. I mean, there's just no way you can express or describe what happened to you. So they just sort of grab that word that was now out in the public venue. They just sort of grabbed that word and said, yes, I had a tunnel. When in fact, maybe they just went through darkness and there wasn't any tunnel at all. Does the body change after a near-death experience? Yes. You have physiological changes as well as psychological changes. On the physical side, we have evidence of brain structure changing, brain function changing. There are changes in the nervous system, uh, the digestive system, and skin sensitivity. Most of them take on a lot of sensitivities. For instance, electrical sensitivity, in my research base, about 71% had electrical sensitivity afterward. Sensitivity to sound, to light, to taste, touch, texture, uh, humidity. This, these, they become very, very sensitive people. Not everybody, of course, but the majority. So, yes, there are changes in the body. I give a big alert to anybody who's a near-death experiencer because most of them uh, lose their tolerance for pharmaceuticals afterward. If they get sick or need a doctor, they need to tell their doctor about this. They need to ask for, if they're an adult, ask for children's doses of, of whatever, or maybe another kind of dose of something else that would work. Most experiencers turn to homeopathy or uh, other types of natural healing afterward but it's especially crucial with children because the average child is medicated according to age and weight well what if that child had a near-death experience they're not going to be able to handle the regular dosage you would give to that age and weight of child so i do everything i can to wave a red flag and say yoohoo wait a minute here whoa <laughs> be very careful with medicine when a child is born from birth and has a near-death experience, does that also affect it through its growing? Well, yes, indeed. And please tell your audience, <laughs> I am now reprising my original work. My original work is in the book, The New Children and Near-Death Experiences. I'm going back now, and I'm doing that work again. Only this time... I'm focusing only on those ages from the womb 
to the age of five. So tell your audience to get on my website. It's www.pmhatwater.com. pmhatwater.com. Right there on the homepage, right there is a call for volunteers for this new study. And I would love to have Irish people. I would love to have people from all over the world. Uh, if you think you might have had a near-death ex- experience in those very tender ages, please use that call for volunteers as the inspiration to help you remember, to think, to connect, to describe, uh, to go back to the, those times and the years since then. Uh, how has your life been? What is your life like now? I want to know all kinds of things about you. So I'm going back to do that work again, because what I have found is that children, their experience is different, different in the sense of how they handle it than any adult, but that those early ages from the womb until about the age of five, those children are unique. And so I, I want to know more. I want to have more data before I make statements about that. You talk about electrical currents and the body being sensitive to it. Will it affect the way electricity runs in the area or the house or environment? Well, I haven't found that it affects the way electricity operates in my home, but I have found it makes a difference with my computer and and the router and all this kind of thing. So, so that I've had to handle it very differently. <laughs> Uh, in my home, and my husband has his Wi-Fi up on the third floor, very much far away from me, and I'm shielded from his Wi-Fi. So, but when I'm out traveling, especially when I'm giving talks, I have to be very careful where I am. So I have learned first to say a prayer, get acquainted with the electrical equipment there, the grids there so that I don't bring down their electricity because I've done it before. Wow. I've done it before. In fact, at a, <laughs> at, a, at a college in Harrisonburg, Virginia, I was speaking to the, the psychological class, you know, psychology. I, I was getting kind of excited, which is a no-no. You don't want to get excited. I was getting excited, and I brought down the electricity in the whole building, brought down the entire grid. Nothing else in the campus just the building where we were and, and brought down the electricity. So I have to be careful <laughs> where I go. <laughs> Make sure I say my prayers first so that I respect other people and other power grids and I don't interfere like now, you know, and I don't know maybe if that's why I didn't hear you call in, but I said my prayers first so that we would have a good session <laughs> and everything would go well and the, the thing wouldn't bust up. <laughs> I, I see. How does medical and doctors associate near-death experience? Some of them accept it. Many of them do not. I urge any medical person, nurse, doctor, orderly, whatever, to get the big book of near-death experiences. It's readily available. You can go to Amazon.com. The big book is like an encyclopedia worldwide of the near-death phenomenon. In there are, are chapters for doctors and nurses and medical people. So I urge them to read that to learn more about the experience, how to recognize when someone is having one or about to have one. When soldiers and military come back from fighting, can they talk about near-death experience or if they've experienced it um, or is that a no-no or if you come across that? That's a really big thing, Erin, because they don't dare talk about it or they wind up in the psych ward or they lose their insurance. It's a really huge problem. We get lots of cases from the military. The president of the International Association of Near-Death Studies, that's I-A-N-D-S, just go by the initials. Her name is Dr. Diane Corcoran, and she's, she's a former Army nurse. She is very active with veterans. She's very active with the military, trying to teach them about the near-death experience and the after-effects of the near-death experience and how they might handle anyone in their group 
who might have had a near-death experience. So this is something that we are working toward and working a lot toward. You know, it's a real sensitive issue. It's a really big deal because um, they really can't talk about their experience. If they do, they're practically punished for it. So, uh, yeah, to get the military to open up and realize that this kind of thing does happen, it happens to their people, and there are things they can do about it. That's a big deal. With all the research you've done and all the books you've written, have you reached the, the middle ground for near death, or is there still more clinical research and more information to be gathered? Well, there's certainly more and more and more. I really feel that we've just begun our work. What the near-death experience implies, and very strongly, is that death does not end life, that life goes on. In some fashion, in some place, somewhere, life goes on. The near-death experience also implies, and very strongly, that there is a God or some type of supreme intelligence we are connected to that force or source. We are children of God, if you want to put it that way. Uh, and that we have a higher calling, a higher being. That everyone has a soul. And that we are capable of far more than we think we are. So those are certainly big ones. They apply cross-culturally. Doesn't matter what your religion is. That same truth seems to arise from Muslim cultures, Buddhist, Wiccan, doesn't matter. That same truth arises from both children and adults, people of any age who have a near-death experience, any language, any culture, doesn't matter. So, so we're seeing these big ones. Yes, there's a God. Yes, you have a soul. Yes, there's life after death. Yes, there's more to the human being than the human being realizes we're more capable than we think. You know, those are huge issues, and the near-death experience does seem to go a long way in establishing uh, that these are real. Through your own experiences and knowledge and what you've gained from your three near-death experiences to now, do you think it taught you something or made you sit up and realize something? I'm like a new person. So did it teach me anything? It taught me everything. Certainly I knew a lot before, but it took all that and just expanded it above and beyond anything I could have ever dreamed. Yeah, I am very much a new and, and different person from who I used to be. Uh, I look different and I feel different. Uh, my life certainly is different. It's much happier. It's much more joyful. I pray and meditate every day. God is as near to me as my next breath. In fact, God is my next friend. So for me personally, it, it has completely transformed my life. And has your, your body been injured or do you have, how are you recovering from? I, I've had surgery several times. I've had problems several times and I amaze the doctors. <laughs> <laughs> it's real funny, a few years ago, I, I was rushing in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania airport to catch my plane and I fell just before the gate, smack, face first. And I had both hands uh, wrapped around the handles of bags. So when I fell nose first, it, it broke my left wrist, but did so in a very unusual way because my hand was wrapped around the handle of a bag. Mm. So it was a spiral break and it was a very unusual break. And when I was finally sent home <laughs> and the doctor looked at it it took 10 days to finally get surgery uh, so during the surgery it was a very long surgery and after the surgery was over it was even longer to get me out of the anesthesia I, I just didn't come out and I was joking about it afterward and I told the doctors I I received a ticket to go back again and, and I was just thinking about it <laughs> but not I would have you know die a fourth time you know I was thinking about it I became the bionic woman. They had to put in all kinds of metal and everything to hold me together. So three weeks later, went in for, for my first x-ray and I was waiting for the result. And the doctor came in and this first time in my whole life this has ever happened. The doctor came to me, grabbed me and gave me a big hug. You know, doctors don't do that. This doctor did. 
And he said, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I can't believe it. I said, what? He said, the x-rays show that your bones were never broken to begin with. Not only have you healed already, it shows there was never a break at all. Wow. Total, complete healing in three weeks. And I finally had the metal taken out a few years ago. I got tired of that stuff. <laughs> and after they took the metal out, you know, filled in perfectly, no problem. Bone healing and, and any kind of healing on me is very, very rapid. Marvis, we're slowly coming up to our time. If you want to share something that you think would be valuable to the audience, what would it be? Well, I'd like to, uh, first of all, recommend that anybody and everybody get on my website. Again, www.pmhatwater.com. I produce a free monthly newsletter so they can subscribe to that newsletter. There's lots of stuff on my website about spiritual transformations, near death and children and adults and all this kind of thing. So they're going to have a lot of fun exploring my website. But also, I would hope that everybody takes a really good look at what most near-death experiencers have to say after they have had their experience. Anywhere in the world, they mostly say the same four words. Always there is life. Now, if you really look at that, Aaron, that means there's no such thing as a before life. There's no such thing as a present life. There's no such thing as, a, as an afterlife. None of that exists. What exists is you have always existed. You exist now and you always will exist because eternity is your home. Um, wow. That says it all. That is beautiful. On that note, I'd like to say thank you very much, PMH Athwar, for, for coming onto the show and sharing what you got to share. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for spending the time to listen to the show. If you want to learn more, check out sansit.com. That's S-A-N-C-I-T dot com. Join Sansit Group on Facebook and contact us if you have any questions. Until next time, have an awesome day and rock on. Thank you for listening to the show. If you find this show very interesting or want to listen to more, please subscribe to iTunes, Holistic Therapies by Sanseet, or go to sanseet.com to subscribe there. If you really like the show, please leave a review or a rating on iTunes or a comment on facebook.com slash sanseet.